Welcome to A Drink with a Friend. I'm Seth Haynes. And I'm Tish Oxenreiter. Tish, what are you drinking today? I'm drinking some tea because I need some tea for both stress relief and caffeine. So it is tea that my friend and longtime assistant Caroline sent me um, called Pims. I'm looking at it. Floral gin, bittersweet orange. So it's loose leaf tea. Huh. It's in this thing and it's good so far. So it's okay. tea. Orange. Is it is it orangey? It's orangey, but not in a bad way. It's it, The bittersweet is real. It's not super sweet, which I like. I don't like super sweet. Um, I don't know. If, and, I, yeah. Go, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. No, I was just going to say it's got good stuff in the ingredients like elderberry and chamomile and orange peel and juniper berry. And it, that's supposedly stuff that's good for stress. And so that's why I'm drinking it anyway. I don't know if you've noticed this, but orange flavors, there are two flavors that can be either really well done or really poorly done. Mm-hmm. Maybe three, but I'm going to argue two. The first one is orange. Do you want to take a mm-hmm. guess at the second? Lemon. Oh, no. That's a good guess, though. Cherry. You know, when you're dealing oh, with yeah. orange or cherry or maybe grape, you can actually end up um, with something that's really authentic tasting or something that tastes like bad antibiotics or that's bad a good way to cough put it. medicine. Yeah. Uh-huh. I like that. That's really true. Um, I love orange flavored just about anything. You're right. I hate the super fake tasting, you know, tastes like a lollipop orange. I I don't dig that, but I love orange. I love orange and chocolate together, which I know a lot of people don't like. Um, Everyone in my family cringes and gives me all the orange thing, which I will happily take. Anyway. I also realized that I said antibiotics as if I'm English, which that's weird. Maybe your Anglophile ways are sort of rubbing off on me. (laughs) If you say aluminium in this episode, then we'll know. Or Habakkuk, if we're talking about the Bible, and I say Habakkuk. I didn't know that's what they did. That's Mm. funny. Mm -hmm. All right. What are you drinking, Seth? I don't know if you can hear this. Did you hear that? Okay. Well, that is um, a little crack of the top of some fancy fizzy water. Today, I'm going with the old standby. Perrier. You are being super European. I am. Wow. I, I feel like I, I feel like today is a sort of European day. So why Perrier? It's well, it's rainy here. It's mm-hmm. a drizzly here. Um, just, uh, you know, the world is a heavy place right now. And I feel like we need a little fanciful beauty in our lives. And mm-hmm. whenever I say the word Perrier, I feel fanciful. And dare I say, beautiful. (laughs) There is a reason for that. But I'm going to say hot take. I give me Topo Chico any day over Perrier. I find it to be a little low Mm. on the bubbly. Yeah, I think I think you're just a little bit more blue collar than I am today. Today, I'm (laughs) sitting in my ivory tower drinking my Perrier. You do that. You look down on me all you want. Hey, listen, you're you're a woman of the people. I am. I'm a proletariat. Mm -hmm. All right. So what you got? What's on your mind today, Seth? Well, you know, Tish, we've talked a little bit about this, and I've actually written a little bit about this lately. Um, and, and I'm really fascinated lately by the epiphanies, the early epiphanies of life hmm. that sort of stick with you, mm-hmm. right? The things that like when you first experience them or see them, you can't unsee them. And you may have had like a completely different tra- trajectory up to that point. 
Um, in fact, some of the narratives of your life might not already be locked in to the extent that even when you have these epiphanies, you, you're a little bit wary of them and you don't fully own them. Hmm. And, and um, I had one of those epiphanies early okay. on. And, right. and so I, I, I don't know, I've just been thinking about that a lot and I'm uh, excited today to kind of explore the epiphanies of youth, All the right. things that happen when you're young. So let me, let me share a little bit about my own story and then um, we can go from there. You know, when I was a kid, um, I was raised in Arkansas pretty much. Then we moved here when I was five. So most of my, um, you know, primary formative experiences were here. I was raised in sort of a rural area early on. And so the kids there were really into what kids are always into, right? Sports, uh, fishing, hunting, all these sort of rural ideas. And so to fit in, you know, at a very early age, I learned, oh, I better be able to hit a baseball. I better be able to dribble a basketball. Um, I better be able to do all of these things uh, well, fish well, um, in order to fit in. And I didn't really know any better. Um, you know, we were raised in a very, I was raised in a very evangelical home. Um, so church didn't have a whole lot of beauty to it necessarily. There's a type of beauty to it, but it's not like stained glass and art and that, that sort of thing. Uh, no, right. sh- no shot against the Baptist here, Baptist friends. Um, and, and they're just, as a result of where we were raised, there wasn't a whole lot of beauty in my life. Now that said, mm. my parents both loved music. They both loved art, um, but access was limited to it. Yeah. And I remember the summer before my fourth grade year, uh, we traveled to Washington, D.C. to visit the National Gallery. I know you're a traveler. Have you ever visited the National Gallery? No, I have not. What? I have visited. I know. I know. I, I, okay. it's on my bucket list. Yeah. Tell me I don't, more. I don't Why know. should I have been I, there? I mean, I know you've been to museums in New York city and I know those are sort of I a have. little bit more, you know, people, you go to those, you know, and maybe when you're in DC, you sometimes skip the national gallery, but, but we went. <sighs> yeah. And I remember walking through, there were two, two exhibits at the time that were there. The yeah. first, uh, along with just the standing exhibits, you know, but the, the first that I remember, and I could be misremembering this, this may have been at a different museum, but the first I remember was uh, either a collection of or one or two of the Fabergé eggs, which mm-hmm. if you've ever seen the Fabergé eggs, I mean, the minute you see one, you're like, holy crap. Can I, can I do a humble brag? I yes, have you seen, can. I have seen Fabergé eggs in Moscow. So oh, yeah, they're can- pretty remarkable. It, they're a bit otherworldly so mm, yeah it's the I, whole thing and and honestly um those of you who subscribe uh to my newsletter do a deep dive search um for faberge eggs in the world at home because i did a really fun podcast a few years ago on them i think they're really cool anyway yeah what's up <laughs> yeah can i do a quick uh, humble brag and say that i drank tea out of uh a faberge egg once <gasps> no okay that's, that's- a- that's, that's a lie. Kind of better. All right. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's also a lie. A lie. Yeah. Oh, it's also a lie. Not... How in the world so did that's I do a humble that? Lie. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. a humble lie. Yeah. So anyway, so we go to the National Gallery and and uh, we live out my humble lie, and then we go to this other area where um, the paintings of of Andrew Wyeth were hanging. Mm-hmm. It was kind of a traveling uh, exhibit, a traveling 
the sort of, I, I don't know where they got the, the paintings from, but they had collected them. They were hanging in the gallery and we were walking through and it was really awkward because, you know, again, I'm, you know, it's after my third grade year. So I'm a boy and, and Andrew Wyeth is very expressive with the female body, which is uh, very awkward when you're a young child, <laughs> mm-hmm. but also, you know, he has paintings that are um, just exquisitely done in their detail. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think about, and we, I think we've talked about on this episode and I cannot remember the name of the painting, but the, the painting of the woman in the dress in the field and, and just right. the, all the detail that goes in that painting, when you look at it and you're like, holy moly, how did he do that? Like pull out yeah. one strand of hair, yep. um, capture the, the way the wind works. And I remember, um, looking at the paintings that I wasn't too embarrassed to look at and thinking, wow, there is something objectively amazing about this. Now, I wouldn't have said that because I was in third grade. Don't know if I even knew what the word objective meant. But there was just something that it, it, it more than intrigued me. It like drew me and it mm-hmm. helped me to see that there's something beautiful and there, in the world and that there's some you know objective worth to objective beauty. Mm-hmm. Now, after that experience, uh, we, we went home, of course, and then school started. And I just happened, it happened to coincide that I was beginning a new school year in a new school. Hmm. And that new school was a Catholic school. Now, I was a Baptist kid. I'd never been to a Catholic church. I had zero context uh, for what happened in a Baptist church, my parents had told me that it was kind of Episcopalian, like it was Episcopalian <laughs> heavy. Right. Um, you know, but, but, and I had some context for that because my grandparents were Episcopalian on one side. And so I knew there was going to be some standing and some sitting and some praying and that sort of thing. So we walked into this uh, beautiful church. It's, it's a church in Fort Smith, Arkansas called Immaculate Conception. And it is uh, not a cathedral, but it sh- should be. I mean, it has to have mm-hmm. feel, particularly when you're, you know, a little kid. And, and mm-hmm. I remember walking in, we walked in single file mm-hmm. and I was astounded by the beauty of uh, yeah. the place. Yeah. Um, and there was this moment when, you know, I'm sitting there not knowing what to do before the mass starts and we're practicing the Psalm, you know, I believe that I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. That was the response. I still remember it all these years later. I still remember the response. And I'm sitting there practicing this with my schoolmates, um, as children do before an all school mass. And I was looking around and looking at these strange statues and this Mm -hmm. strange stained glass and all of these, you know, what are, I now know are the stations of the cross and the light was coming in through the windows at awkward angles. And, um, you know, as in most of these old Catholic churches, when the light comes in in a certain way, you can sort of see the shards of, of light cutting through the dust and the incense uh, remnants. And, and it was this moment of feeling absolutely transported somewhere mm-hmm. else by yeah. beauty. Yeah. And when that was over... When the mass was over, the first mass was over, we went back, we had lunch. I went outside and what did I do? I played basketball, uh, maybe some kickball. I don't know. Um, you know, later that week I fished. I did all the things I knew to fit in. It's almost like I tried to, to, to not really 
wrestle with this thing. And of course, why would I? I was in third, well, I was in fourth grade. Um, and, and it would be years and years and years later until I would fully appreciate the confluence of these two events, this, this Wyeth uh, exhibit hmm. and my first uh, entrance into the Catholic church. First time I walked into a Catholic church and I would uh, uh, come to the realization that my soul longs for beauty mm-hmm. and not abstract beauty. I'm an abstract mm-hmm. thinker. I'm an abstract person as abstract as they come. Yeah. But my soul and my personhood uh, longs for something that is objectively transcendent and beautiful. Yeah. I wouldn't call myself an artist in any way for another, I don't know, probably until I was in my early twenties or maybe late teens when I started playing music a little bit more, but this was my first experience with beauty and it was epiphanal. It was a thing that stuck with me. And now all these years later, I can't shake it. And it, it actually directs, a lot of my life. My pursuit of beauty has directed a, a lot of my life. And you were about like nine years old or so, right? Yeah. I mean, I guess that would have been true between eighth and ninth, uh, fourth, third and f- that would have been true between third and fourth grade. So yeah, I guess that would have Something. been, is that nine? I guess. Yeah. Around nine. Um, I'm just imp- like the story you're telling Sounds to me like something I would have experienced like in junior high, high school, or even college. So it's interesting to me that that connection to beauty at that young an age has stuck with you, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, who knows why that is? I think we all have epiphanies at different ages and for different reasons. But what I will tell you is that as I continued on in my own spiritual journey, no matter where I went, mm-hmm. uh, even even when the you know the the scripture readings, the sacred texts were were really amazing, or whatever the prayers were really amazing, um, or whatever the case may be, um, there was always something just short. Mm. Like I could see the idea of objective truth, but objective truth mm. without objective view, beauty just left me really lacking. And, hmm. and, and when I think about that, it doesn't mean that objective beauty or that beauty has to be some ornate and extravagant display. Yeah, um, sure. I think about um, in Santa Fe, the cathedral. Have you been to the cathedral of St. Francis in Santa mm-hmm. Fe? No, but I know exactly what you're talking about. Mm-mm, I haven't been there. Yeah. And it's not ornate. I mean, it is in a sense, but it's, it's not like a, a big huge display. It's something very Mm -hmm. simple. The art is very simple. Um, It's very much what you'd expect in the Southwest. And yet uh, the beauty is undeniable. Mm -hmm. And, and when you worship in that place or when you stand in that place, there is a connection between the beauty of objective truth and the beauty of uh, objective beauty of art. Um, And there's something about that, that really just pulls me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and really helps me sort of understand and focus on what is sacramental. Where is God at work in the world around us? And, you know, since we love talking about sacramentality, I mean, that's the whole point of our weekly conversations, the theme, and that beauty is the one that we both feel like in our lives have drawn us in. 
what do you think, like unpack a little bit, why, why do you think your nine-year-old self, who was also very preoccupied with um, fitting in, you know, and wanting yeah. to be a sports, sports ball kind of kid, um, why do you think God used that moment to give you a glimpse of what real objective beauty is? Or maybe I should ask, why do you, why do you think you responded to it? Yeah, I don't know the answer to that. I I mean, again, I think, I think probably we're all created a little bit differently, right? I think we all, we all kind of have uh, maybe different, you know, strings that could be tugged at different times Mm -hmm. to pull us in a certain direction. I don't know if that's uh, maybe a little too metaphorical, but um, I think, you know, for me, I, I was always a deep feeler. Um, I wasn't just a deep thinker. I was always also a deep feeler. Yeah. Um, and, and I mean, from the very earliest age, I mean, I remember mm. feeling music, right. Feeling mm-hmm. the tug. Like when I was six, here's another story. When I was six years old, I was given this radio and um, by my my aunt and uncle, and I, there was a, a plug in on the other side of the room where I could plug in this radio. And so I would sneak out of my bed at night. I would crawl across the floor with my blanket and my pillow, and I would lie on the floor and turn it down as low as it would go and hold it to my ear so I could hear it. And I would wait for the foreigner song "I Want to Know What Love Is." <laughs> yeah. At which point. I could fall asleep. I don't understand it. It's the weirdest thing. That it's a weird confession. Um, but right. from, the, from the earliest age, I was a really a deep feeler. And I think some people come to their realization of feeling an art later in life. And um, and that's okay. I mean, the, the, yeah. there are different seasons and different time for different people. But I think for me, uh, I reckon anyway, that, that God knew that to keep my attention – um, mm. he was going to have to show me something beautiful and he was going to have to do it pretty damn quickly. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so that's, I, I think for me, it was not like the, the, uh, the idea of objective truth through an uh, exegesis of a preacher on the, you know, podium, uh, was never enough to hold me. Right. Right. And well, and to me, this shows because you weren't seeking it out and because you were, a nine-year-old boy for all intents and purposes, how this isn't, how, how it is innate in us, just in the human experience, like being a human being on earth means we're drawn to beauty um, by nature of just what beauty does and who we are as humans, because you didn't seek it out and you would have never like created something like that on your own. You had to be shown it um, from outside yourself. So, and we've all had those experiences. I'm sure listeners listening in are, are hearing this and thinking, I have been there before. I have my story that's some somewhat akin to that. So, you know, we we nod along in these kinds of things. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's important to go back to those moments as as a child and to to revisit mm. and to examine um those moments as a child. The important, the point poignant moments. Um I was actually talking to a friend of the show who's not been on the show, I don't think, but a friend of the show. Uh, Annie Downs a while back. And She's been on the show, but it's been a long time. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, and Annie said to me uh, something that was amazing. Um, she said, these days I'm asking myself, uh, how do I honor, respect, and protect little girl Annie? And I think what okay. she's 
what she's saying there is how do I look back on my life and say all of this baggage I've sort of heaped on in adulthood, that's like actually not part of my authentic self. Mm-hmm. So how do I sort of undo that baggage and go back to that place that was my authentic self before I learn to put up facades, before I learn to put up mm-hmm. shows? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think for me, that's what those experiences, those epiphanies do. They, they remind me that, yeah, man, I have a job to do. My, my daily grinding job is not to create beauty. Um, you know, the daily mm. grind of taking the kids to the ball game has nothing to do with beauty. Uh, cooking the dinner doesn't necessarily have anything to do with beauty. Um, but when you strip all those things away and ask what it takes to really fuel me and to keep me connected to my authentic self, um, the truth is I, I need beauty in my life. Yeah. Well, and I like that Annie's bit of um, wisdom there can actually be advice to all of us. I've done a an episode on the show when it was The Good List called Your 5 and 85-Year-Old Self. And Tate and I were literally talking about this um, over the summer. The idea being from an artist, um, so this isn't my original idea, what we need to do, like the, the people we should care about in our lives right now, like impressing anyway, is our five-year-old selves and our 85-year-old selves. And the yeah. reason is because it helps us think about the past and the future. And for the sake of this conversation, our past selves, think about what would have made your five-year-old self just proud of you, you know? And it it came true yesterday for Tate because she got her driver's license. Mm. She passed her <laughs> test. And so she said, my 16 year, or she said, my six year old self is really proud of me right now. And I said, oh, why six in particular? She said, it's me 10 years ago. And that's when I first remember really wanting my driver's license. Mm, that's <laughs> and I awesome. thought that was, I thought that was really cool. Uh, but we all have that, right? We all can think of who we were then and the stories we told ourselves, the stories that resonated with us, like the one that you talked about. And I think there's really some truth to our childhood selves speaking into our present, you know? Yeah. Hey guys, a quick break from our chat to tell you about a little tool I've been using the past year or so that has been a game changer for me. And I think you'll like it too. It's called Hallow and it's a prayer and meditation app that is chock full of great resources to help me pray better and meditate more deeply. It has audio guided ancient prayers, Bible readings, follow along guides for things like Lectio Divina, examine, night prayer, some seasonal music, optional background, ambient noise, and more. And the thing is, it's really high quality. I know sometimes stuff like this is either poorly produced or kind of cheesy. And Hallow is neither of those things. And I have a super high kind of snobbish standard in that department, believe me. So some of what's on Hallow is intentionally really short, which is nice when we're talking a minute long for those quick breaks you need in the middle of a workday. Some of it is for when you can't sleep and you need to quiet your mind. Some of it is great for while you're sitting in traffic or going on a walk. And you can also create customized routines, which is so helpful for cultivating those habits we all want. So right now in my routine on Hallow, I've got a morning time of learning about and praying along with the saint of the day, according to the church calendar. And then in the evening, a routine of examine for daily reflection. Both of these things take me about 10 minutes. And yet I'm telling you, these little practices have made such a big difference in my life. I first started Hallow back with a 30-day trial, and I loved it so much. I not only upgraded to an annual subscription, I went with a family plan so that my entire household can use it too. 
So if you're looking for a meditation resource, but you want it faith-based, Hallow is the way to go. Now, yes, they're Catholic, which I personally love as a brand new convert, but I was using Hallow as a Protestant and I loved it just as much. In fact, it was a simple, encouraging way to, quote, try out some beloved Catholic ancient practices without worry of me not knowing what the heck I was doing. You don't have to be Catholic to find Hallow incredibly life-giving. And I am so thrilled to tell you that they're giving you guys, the Drink with a Friend listeners, the opportunity to try them out with a 30-day trial as well. So you go to hallow.com slash drinks. That's H-A-L-L-O-W dot com slash drinks. And you can test drive the complete version of Hallow for free for 30 days. After that, you can go with the free version, which still has some great stuff on it, but there's a chance you'll be like me and want to keep the full version because it's so dadgum useful and life-giving. So again, that's hallow.com slash drinks for a free 30-day trial. Okay, back to our chat. So let's practice a little bit. What is a childhood moment, memory, epiphany of yours that stands Mm -hmm. out? I've been thinking about this since you started talking because I can come up with like really poignant, more like enriching, deeper stories later in life. But I want to take a cue from you and stick to my younger self. Mm -hmm. Um, And so for me, there's two that come to mind, but they're not actually like one-off memories, they're repetitive memories, like things that I would do. So maybe I need to go somewhere different, but you tell me. Um, The first one is when I, from age three to 16, I was in ballet, which is a really long time when that's, you know, when you're a kid. So it was my entire life. And once I hit my teen years, I was doing it like six days a week. Um, I thought it might be a career path for me for a while. But um, when I was younger, I remember... There was a point when I was about eight when I crossed some kind of Rubicon from being terrified about being on stage to loving mm. it. And this, when I think about that age of recurring memory I have, because I would, I did two shows a year, is the feeling I got right before I got on stage. So I think when I, like, if you were to ask me, think of yourself at age eight, the, in the place I'm instantly ported, uh, portaled back to is off stage right before I'm about to go on Mm. and that feeling I have. And it's not about performing in a look at me way. It's about as soon as I would go on stage, I lost myself in it. The music and the movement, it was like that's, that was the closest thing to home I had felt outside of just being in my own bed in my own cozy bedroom. And I was a shy kid. Yeah. I was a nerdy kid. I I did not I was not showy at mm-hmm. all. Was I the worst part of all of this were the costumes. Yeah. Where yeah. for some girls <laughs> for some girls it was their favorite part. For me, it was like, oh my gosh, can't I just wear, you know, what I wear to ballet class? I hate this part. So just to kind of show you what kind of kid I was. Um, so that to me is interesting that what really connected to me, even at that young age, was the music and the movement. Um, and then alongside that, I frequently, because this is the 80s, um, would in my childhood just go off 
in our neighborhood to this one spot in a creek mm. in our suburban neighborhood. But there was a creek that ran through it. It was like a dry bed yeah. um, with all this cool limestone rock. And there was a tree I loved because it had all these exposed roots and it was really cool. And I would go to this one little spot that, and I had a seat, you know, made out of rock and wood um, given by nature. I didn't create it um, in between these two roots. And I would just go and read. And I wanted mm. to be there pretty much more than anywhere else when I was a kid, when it came to like my happy place. Um, so going there a lot, I went there till probably like sixth or seventh grade. And I don't think my parents ever knew about it. It wasn't like I was hiding it. It was just the eighties. You just kind of like yeah, be home by dinner right, kind of thing. Right. Um, <laughs> don't talk to, and so those are the two be home by dinner. Don't talk yeah. to Pennywise. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and so um, those are the two memories that come to mind from my childhood. What was it about the sort of secret place for you? Mm, I think some of it was in the name. I like that nobody else knew about it. So it felt really kind of not juicy, but kind of um, Terabithia like, you know, like this is my particular kingdom. Um, there were people that would walk by. It wasn't like hidden. It was just along the hike and bike trail, but it felt like it was like I planted a little metaphorical flag there that was mine. Um, you know, it's not like I grew up in a big family. I only had one sibling and I had my own room, but there was something else. It was almost like I could just decide what I wanted. It felt autonomous. Mm. Um, so that, and then I think also it was very... I mean, it was rustic because it was the literal nature. It was the literal outdoors. Um, and so there was nothing polished or prescripted about mm. it. It would, just was what it was. It was like there was a, that seat that just was like an invitation. Yeah. I didn't create a seat at all. It was, it was given to me by the rock. Yeah. And, and was that. it always the same? Did you always do the same thing? Was it always reading? Um, it was usually reading, but I also did some things like just, I, I tried to climb the tree a couple of times. It's, a, it was a really big live oak cause Texas. Yeah. Um, I did that some, I kind of tidied it. Like Ooh. I would sort of arrange the rocks. There is this book from my childhood that I loved, um, cause they created this make believe world where they aligned the rocks and those became the roads of a town, like some friends in the neighborhood. And so I just kind of almost like made it a place of my own. I arranged it, but I still left it wild. I didn't add, you know, pom-poms or glitter. Um, so yeah, those are probably the two things I did. When you look back on that moment and, and again, I mean, we're sort of mucking about in the space of epiphany. So mine were two really connected epiphanies, but it's easy to say that looking back because I've now connected the epiphanies, right? It's like, those were the things that happened and now I've made the connection. Um, and Mm -hmm. I can't unconnect it. When you look back at that, how do you see that influencing like your life now? It's a good question. I've long known that I highly value autonomy, getting to make a space my own. Um, I would, gosh, that's a great question. The natural beauty and the ruggedness of a space even in the suburbs, I think really deeply spoke to me. And so I wonder if I can, I can pull that thread to my, you know, almost 44 year old self now and see that that is a common theme. Like whenever I'm somewhere, um, even in a city, I like to find the natural, the unformed, the, the made by God beauty, even if I can appreciate architecture or man-made art, um, 
And, but I'm trying to think of why, <laughs> like, what is it about nature that, that speaks to me? Um, but I definitely see that theme of beauty, like you talked about that I hadn't thought about before. Was there a saint that steps out, you know, of history to you? Uh, two, St. Francis. Um, Frank is my, my dude. A lot Frankie. Of, yeah. In a lot of ways. Um, for a lot of those reasons related to nature. And then someone that I'm just now learning in, from the past, like, 18 months, and that's Kateri Tekwakwithi. I don't know if I'm saying her name right, but the saint, mm-hmm. our first Native American saint. Mm-hmm. Um, she's the patron saint of ecology. Mm-hmm. And I I really like her, and I like her story a lot. And do you know where there's a statue of her? Where? Tell me. The Cathedral of St. Francis in Santa Fe. That's weird. I think that's <laughs> true. We'll have to double check that. We'll have to fact check that. We'll get our fact checking team on that. Yeah. Um, I didn't know that. I, See, I think it's interesting when you're talking about these things like the innate connection of our childhood epiphanies to um, to our, our modern spirituality, to what connects with us now in the here and now. I mean, those things that tug on you and pull you and pull you and pull you and pull you, man, those are the things that um, that ultimately become defining in your adulthood and in your adult spirituality. And so you know, for instance, you know, I love, I love this idea of, of, of art in church. And so if I were to have to go to a Quaker assembly and sit, I, I think, I mean, I, I love the silence because I do love silence. It's a deep, also a deep part of who I am, but like looking around a white room with rough hewn, uh, you know, uh, pews or whatever might not do it for me. Um, but for you, you might walk into a Quaker space and feel really at home. Maybe not worship there every week, but but again, it's that it's the quiet place, it's the secret mm. place, it's silence, mm. it's rough hewn. Um, and so I I just think it's important that we explore these things, you know. And, and there are spaces that I walk into. In fact, this happened in Marfa, Texas. So I visited a church in Marfa. And it was the most Marfa thing about Marfa. The Catholic church (laughs) in Marfa is literally the most Marfa thing about Marfa. It feels like an installation. Um, And and, (laughs) and in a sense, it's like so totally Marfa that it makes a lot of sense. They have these um, LED lights that go around the cross, the crucifix. Um, Oh gosh. Okay. Yeah. The the floor, (laughs) the the floor under the altar is um, red uh, ceramic, I guess, or red, red, uh, whatever paint it's red painted. Um, and it's, it's just really interesting. Again, most Marfa thing about Marfa was the Catholic church. Um, and it fits the personality, but for me, it wasn't, it would like, it would be very difficult to worship Mm -hmm. there because it's a certain type of beauty. That's not the same thing that I, that I kind of look for, you know? And, yeah. And so I think all of these things kind of like in our adult years, they really come together to say like, who are you? Where do you worship best? Um, Hmm. Where do you connect with the saints? Where do you connect with the work of God in your life? And like, Mm -hmm. go be true to those places and go find those places. I really like that. I mean, hearing you talk, I, we've talked about this on the show before. When I go to places like cathedrals and museums, I often pick up a rock on the way in or somewhere in that area and keep it in my pocket. Because when I'm looking at this hauntingly beautiful art, which I love, I love man-made art. 
I like to have like a tethering to um, the natural. Like, I don't know what it is. Like, I can't, I mean, to me, it's almost, it feels like it's, I'm tied back to the dock of God in that way. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I don't know. That's really interesting to put it that way. I hadn't thought of it before. Hmm. The, the fact checkers have also come back and have informed me that the statue is in fact outside of the cathedral of St. Francis. So I think you should put that on your list of places to go <sighs> okay. stat. That is bizarre and cool. Okay. <laughs> Kyle, take note. We might have to go there next time. We we almost drove through Santa Fe on our way up to Oregon this summer. Oh, maybe we'll have to next summer. Yeah. How far away is it from you? Uh, ten hours. So ten hours. It's I mean, a drive. You could, do, you could do that in two days. Just take we off could. next week. Go take it. Go do. Go do it. In all my spare time right now. Yeah. 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 <laughs> we'll do. So I I mean I guess for me as mm-hmm. I'm thinking this through I mean I think the ultimate question it you know that 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 I hope we all ask and that I hope I ask and that that we kind of keep pressing into here is, you know, what are the things that stand out to us, the epiphanies that stand out to us early in life and how can Mm -hmm. we honor those epiphanies um, with our Mm. journeys and live into Mm. it? You know, I think it's really important. And I think it's important that we don't get co-opted by these powers of politics or pop culture or whatever, you know, whatever the thing is. I know I sound like an old man right now, but, but that we honor those epiphanies over, those those powers right right and i think um in our busy days you know at the time we're recording this at least in the northern hemisphere we're heading into fall and therefore a school year for many of us parents it's easy to just do the thing in front of us because we're just in survival mode and i like the invitation this gives us to listen to those quiet stories listen to the the stories our five-year-old self is telling us about what matters to him or her in life and maybe um, honor that by just listening and paying attention. You know, I think it's the work of paying attention, which is what we talk about here on the show all the time. It's not about having these amazing cathedral moments all the time. It's about like, well, you're stirring the soup, you know, hear, hear what, what comes to you and, and don't ignore that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. It's good. It's good. All right. Well, Seth, what in your life, is bringing you more beauty in your everyday. Speaking of which. Yeah. So I think, you know, this may have Mm -hmm. even talked about it before we are on what feels like the never ending journey from the Shire to Mordor in my house. Um, So we've been reading the Lord of the Rings trilogy now for, I think two years, just so slowly. And part of it is, you know, basketball season will come up and we're disrupted for three months Uh, or uh, what, you know, whatever school, COVID, well, I don't know, whatever you want to call it. We, we just keep getting disrupted. Right. Um, we're almost through the second book. So we're, we're, we're legitimately, yeah, I mean, it's awesome. I think we're like 700 pages in or something. Okay. Um, and last night we sat down to read again. We read like three times this week, which was amazing for our family. Um, and man, every time I read, not every time, but, but you know, when I read Tolkien, I forget how good he is. He's yeah. so good. And mm-hmm. um, there are these moments when you're reading, particularly the Lord of the Rings, where you can, it almost kind of, you feel like you're getting sort of in a rut. Um, oh, yeah. Two, three, four, five pages sometimes. I mean, sometimes yeah, the like, rut can. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. It's, sometimes a rut can just go, it feels like it just goes on and on. 
Well, um, it's like how many ways can you talk about trees? Yeah. Yeah. Or or right. how how long do you need to describe a rock? Right. Exactly. Do, do you need five <laughs> sentences really to do this? Um, which reminds right. me of the last of the Mohicans. Completely different other story, but I feel oh. that way about the last of the Mohicans too. But anyway, that's sure. either here or there. The book or the um, movie? The book. The book is the worst. Oh, yeah. It's anyway, the worst. It's the worst. Uh, anyway, well, I say it's anyway. the worst. That's not a hundred percent true because, believe it or not, I hate great expectations. Oh, I've, it's not great. I've it, said it's, it. Yeah, it's mediocre expectations for sure. But but yeah, right. Mediocre expectations. That's right. Um, yeah. But last night we were reading, and uh, you know, he just has these moments where he'll string three pages of paragraphs together that make you want to weep because he's such yeah. a good writer. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's where we were in that section last night where they're sort of on their way to Mordor and they're, he's describing the, the, the land and, it, and for whatever reason, it reminded me of the opening of John Steinbeck's East of Eden, the ah. way, the way uh-huh. they both describe uh, just sort of the flora and fauna, um, mm. of a place, even though one is really Steinbeck's is really beautiful. And, and, and this particular passage of Tolkien is very dark. Um, boy, they, they can, they can both write. So I, I think what I'm c- coming to find out is I really love it when a writer does super interesting things with landscape. Mm. Mm-hmm. I and so that. now reading landscape is bringing uh, a lot of truth, beauty, and goodness to my life. You know what? I really get that to bring it full circle to the conversation we had earlier. I I understand how oh, writing where the landscape feels like another character, I yeah. think there's, th- there's a sacred work to that that is hard to do but makes a story what it is. Like you can't imagine the Lord of the Rings in any other place in any other type of way. Like you can't even imagine the trees being different or the rocks or the the grass being different because of the way he writes it. So that's yeah. a great way to put it. Yeah, which is why when everyone re- sees the movie, they're all like, oh, yeah, this is exactly how I imagined it. Well, of course, because he was so detailed. It also yeah. reminds me of your comment last week about uh, even when Waz writing and particularly mm. our conversation about the storm, just the ability to like yeah. see the storm as a character, you know, like see things yeah. other than characters as character. I, so I'm going to add in the show notes as well, but I, you know, I'm going to send it to you. There was a recent episode of um, a podcast, Pints with Aquinas, where he was talking with Peter Kraft and they were talking about Lord of the Rings. And Matt Frad asked him, why do you think Lord of the Rings is so good? And I love, I love Peter Kraft. Um, and the way he phrased it was spot on perfect because he talked about even though Middle Earth is fantasy, it's realer than our Earth. And yeah. he gets into how That's it's good. realer because of Tolkien's writing. And it, it, it's like, the the swords are sharper the grass is greener the heroes are more heroic and mm-hmm. i thought that is it so that's yeah. what you're speaking into and i love and that. i think part of the reason and part of part of the reason we all feel this is because he's able to create such flawed characters and landscape that can coexist with such beautiful mm-hmm. character in the characters and in the landscape and that that that's what makes it real because we all know that that ideals are are really exactly that they're idyllic they're right, not real right so right. so tish tell me what's one thing 
this week that you're reading, watching, listening to, maybe cooking. We've done that one. Um, that is bringing you more truth, beauty, or goodness. Well, we all know what's going on with Afghanistan in the news, and we can't escape the the sound bites and the yep. headlines, and they they invite us to doom scroll if we're not careful. Yeah, uh, this happens yeah. a lot with certain newsworthy events. You know, this is this happened with Syria. This has happened all all sorts of times. Name an event, and you can just get lost in the in the sadness of it all. And there's legitimacy to that. But yeah. one of the things I do in my newsletter that I encourage other people to do because I'm encouraging myself to do is to peel back the layer of what is the headline to see what's really there and who is it we're really talking about? Mm-hmm. Who are the people? What are the places actually like? So one of the things I did after reading headlines and getting caught up on the news because I don't want to bury my my head in the sand is I stop doing that when I feel like I've, I've got the gist. I, mm-hmm. I know enough teach me about the places. And so I went to YouTube actually and just started searching Afghanistan travel instead of Afghanistan mm. news instead of Afghanistan news. And I came upon this one guy I had never heard of but apparently I'm the only one cuz he's got like 2.3 million subscribers. His name is Drew Binky. Have you heard of huh. him? No, I haven't. Okay. Then it's you and me. Um he is a travel videographer a travel vlogger, I guess. He is young, maybe mid twenties. And he is on a quest right now to go to all the countries in the world, which you can do when you don't have kids. And he recently went to Afghanistan for the second time. This is back Mm. in November, 2020. So we're talking less than a year out from recording of this. And I wanted to see what it's just give me a boots on the ground every day, the real people story. And I just got lost down a rabbit hole on some of his channels or sorry, on some of his videos. And so I'm going to put in the show notes, some of my favorite videos of his, because it just told me about like day in the life stuff about kids playing cricket and how it's the national pastime of Afghanistan. Did not know that about Mm. what his favorite street food is. It looks amazing and delicious from Kabul about uh, just some of the really cool architecture about the last living Jew that lives in Afghanistan and the back history of that. And it's just so cool. And so I think I I say all this to come full circle and say, whenever we're in the midst of news, um, let's just remember to hear about the people and not just the enraging headlines that are supposed to cause us to feel a certain way. Um, That's it's a sacramental work of, of, beauty and goodness, I think, for us to do that, because we have to seek it out. It's not going to be put in our laps. That's not what's going to be in our Twitter feeds. Um, To go seek it out and then to learn about people. And so the kids and I were just talking today, like, sometime, let's go find an Afghani restaurant. I don't know if there's one in this area, but if not Afghani, some other culture adjacent, you know, Persian or something, let's go eat. Let's support them and let's um, remember that we're just a tiny blip in the world. I think it's good for us all to do that sometime. So that's what's adding more beauty to my life. Yeah, right that's awesome. What's his favorite street food, by the way? I can't remember the name of it. It's got an interesting name, but it's a street food that I think most cultures have a version of. Kyle and I say that every culture has some kind of donut shaped bread. Yes. Um, Right. A bagel or something. It's not that, but it's it, it's another street food I think everybody has. And it's some sort of folded pastry with stuff in it. Yeah. And it's that. Yeah, yeah. So it was it's the thin pastry dough full of vegetables and meat. And then like phyllo phyllo with stuff. in it. Yep. That's it's right. a, so it's it a version a, of that. It is an Afghani calzone 
<laughs> right? Or a crepe or a, you know, insert whatever folded food. Exactly. Or if you're from Louisiana, we, we just used to call them meat pies. Well, there you go. It's an Afghani meat pie. Yeah. I can't I like remember the name. Afghani meat pie. All right. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. I want to follow this. So make sure yeah. that you put it in the show notes so that we can yeah, all now follow him. And everybody will probably say, oh, Tish and Seth, you guys are so stupid. How did you not know about know. this guy? Uh, exactly. I feel like that. Anytime I run across somebody that's, you know, that apparently everyone knows about. That's I, I'm just old man on the Internet at this point. Old yeah, I, again, we just go back to the oldness. The, oh, yeah. hey, Tish, have you ever heard of this guy? <laughs> right, I know. The youths have stopped listening yeah, by now. That's right. So, that's yeah. probably true. All right. All right. Well, it's time to wrap this one up. You can find this episode as well as all episodes at adrinkwithafriend.com. If you like the show and what we're doing, please help keep it going by picking up the next round of drinks. As we've always said, the show is free for you to listen to, but not free for us to make. So at the cost of a cup of coffee or a pint, you can play a pretty big part. Find the link to do this in the show notes of this episode or at adrinkwithafriend.com. And thank you in advance. And also a quick reminder to check out Hallow Free for 30 days at hallow.com slash drinks. I am currently following along with them, praying the emergency nine-day novena for Afghanistan through Hallow. It's really great. So I think you'll like it. Again, that's hallow.com slash drinks or find the link in the show notes. You can find me and how to connect with me, especially via my newsletter at tishoxenwriter.com. Seth, where can people find you? Uh, SethHaines.com. And that's Haines with an I, not like the underwear is spelled. There you go. Music for the show is by Kevin McLeod. Editing is by Kyle Oxenwriter. Caroline Tassell is our transcriber and assistant extraordinaire. I'm Tish Oxenwriter with Seth Haines, and we will be back here again with you soon. Thanks for listening.